Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right. I want to talk to you this morning about chosen for eternal impact from the Gospel of John. And today, Jesus is going to talk about distinctive traits. Distinct traits. What do I mean by distinct? Well, let me see if I can't draw a mental picture for you. I am a Harrison. A Harrison. Half Scottish, half Irish. And I'm almost convinced we got the worst of both, you know. Especially at family reunions right? Uh, Which we have every year, every summer, uh, the Harrison family gathers. And uh, I go because at this, I get to experience the defining traits of my life and what my life's going to look like in the next, well, now 20 years. It used to be 30 to 40, right? And I sit with my father and his brothers and sister, uh, six children in all, And as I watch my uncles, internally I weep while externally I grin um, over what my life's going to look like. So here's my destiny in a very succinct statement. It will be defined by below knee length acid wash jean shorts with black socks and white tennis shoes. Or white tube socks and black dress shoes. Coupled with a button-up collared shirt with an overflowing chest pocket. Later today you'll thank me as you can't get rid of that image in your mind. (laughs) And I can't either. You know, to see it is to think that is distinct. (laughs) Right? I I mean, if, if you ever needed, I should have brought a picture. That might have helped. And I, friends, am prepared for my Harrison destiny. Pray for my wife. I'm pretty sure it's a a counseling session among the wives of the brothers every summer as well. I'm also ready, though, for my Christian destiny. For in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are conformed to his image, growing in the distinct likeness of him by our love for him and our obedience to him. And so today I want you to see that Christians are chosen by God to make an eternal kingdom impact in the world by loving one another. Let's go to our text for today, John chapter 15. I'll begin reading in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. 
Last week in the first 15 verses of John chapter 15, we looked at four ways that abide sources our life. Abide keeps the Christian in the will of God for intimate communion, in the work of God for unlimited fruit bearing, in the way of God for increasing love by obedience, and in the want of God for overflowing joy. Today, Jesus shows how it is that abiding in him sources the Christian life and why it is that it is important. Christian, when your life is sourced by Jesus through abide, your life produces fruit that abides. And therein lies our why. But before we move to those distinctive traits, I want us to consider as Christ lays down for us, one principle as the culmination of all of Jesus' teaching. Not just his teaching in this chapter or even in this one gospel account, but his teaching of all, all the Old and all the New Testament, and it is the principle of supreme love. You see, as Jesus carries forth from the verses and the value of abide that he's laid down in the first 15 verses, he goes back to chapter 13 and verse 34, and he repeats in verse 12 this commandment again. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is the principle of supreme love that he provides for us. He culminates all of his commands into one. Love one another. He emphasizes the priority of love for one another, for his disciples. And, and he tells us that Christian love for one another testifies this, that God loved, and sent, loved us and sent Jesus to show his love for us. So you see, friends, love for one another is the distinctive mark of Christ's followers. That's what he's laying down here. Jesus demonstrated for us what it looked like to live in love. His whole life was the revelation of perfect love and obedience to the Father. Jesus lived a perfect life. He's the only one in recorded human history that, would, that, that has done that, let alone dare claim to do that. And he tells us, in the next verses that he would soon demonstrate not only perfect love, but ultimate love, of which there is none greater to lay down his life for his friends. He prepares the disciples to understand what his crucifixion means as God's love for them. Remember, he's teaching forward. We're looking back. And as he prepares them for what's about to take place, in a very few short days, he's teaching them how to understand what they experience once they've come out on the other side. Jesus displays God's supreme love to save sinners in his crucifixion. That's what he's wanting us to understand. And when he has arisen and ascended, he wants his disciples to remember that through the supreme display of ultimate love, life is born. Jesus died to save sinners. And he tells us this, to make them his friend. Friends, this kind of love is life 
life-changing. It's life-compelling, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. For Jesus' crucifixion provides the redeeming motivation for Christ followers to love one another. So what is this principle of supreme love then? Well, the principle of supreme love that he lays down in verses 12 and 13 is simply this. Jesus lays down his life to make his enemies his friend, that they might deny themselves and follow him so others can know God's love. This is the foundational theology For the Christian life. That Jesus laid down his life to make his enemies his friends. His enemies while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. At just the right time, it tells us. Some of you might say, well, I didn't feel like his enemy. Sin made us his enemy. And he laid down his life to make us his friend when we believe in him. That we might lay down our life. In the same way, no, not like he did, but as he did. Luke 9, 23 tells us, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So those who believe in Jesus deny themselves and follow him by faith so others can know God's love. Friends, this is the principle of supreme love in the Christian life. Love is the Christian life principle because in it, all of God's holy law is fulfilled. All of it. Not one of many laws, but the one unifying principle by which all others are fulfilled. That's how important this is. And might I just offer to us, that's why John's written his whole gospel. We started this gospel a year and a half ago looking at the man who wrote this gospel whose nickname was the Beloved. He had the most intimate relationship with the one who is loved, Jesus Christ. And he tells us this, I am the Beloved who writes to tell you of an unimaginable love that Christ has for you that you might believe in him and become the Beloved. The principle of supreme love is the rule of life in the kingdom of God, to live as we've been loved. The principle of supreme love is the gospel applied in the Christ follower's life for an eternal impact. For this principle sets forth how it is that that God came to save and, and how the life in his kingdom is to be lived and why it is that he's left us to remain in the world For this time. For Jesus laid down his life to show God's love and to give eternal life to those who believe. Christians deny their life to follow Christ so others may know his love through their faithful testimony. In Jesus, Christ followers abide to unite with God's mission of redemption and reconciliation. That's why Christ has given us 15 verses in the first part of this chapter to teach us why abide is critical as the essence and the essential practice of the Christian life. And so marked by love as Jesus' disciple, this brings a Christ follower into a much larger truth 
that God's love in Christ Jesus, when we believe in Him, it unites us with the triune God in His redemptive work. Jesus has just introduced the Holy Spirit in the previous chapter. And He tells us what the Holy Spirit will do when He ascends into heaven. But now He's telling us what the Holy Spirit will do through the life of the Christ follower who unites with the triune God to carry forth His redemptive work in the world. And so that's what I want us to see today, that God's supreme love set on us in Jesus brings three distinctive traits to the life of the Christian. And the first distinctive trait that Christians bear through love is this. It's a redeeming knowledge. He lays down this supreme principle or uh, principle of supreme love, excuse me. And this principle placed upon our life brings three distinctive traits. The first of all, which is a redeeming knowledge. Those who love and obey Jesus enjoy a special relationship with Him. Look at verse 14. We see He gives us the command. We see that He foretells His death, that He will lay down His life for people He calls friends. And what does it mean to be God's friends? You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Those who love and obey Jesus are marked with a special relationship. The God of all creation demonstrates His supreme love to save, and not only to save us, but to call us friends, to bring us into a personal relationship with Him. And friends, as we talked about last week, as love begets love, relationship with Jesus deepens through obedience as His friend. Now, friendship has responsibilities, one commentator, Leon Moore, says it this way, obedience is the test of discipleship. That's what Jesus has been instilling, that to keep his way is the same. It's synonymous with loving him. So Jesus identifies his friends by obedience to his commands, who trust by abiding in him. But he tells us more about this friendship as well. Not only does friendship with Jesus have responsibilities, but friendship with Jesus enjoys divine privilege. Christ followers know God. That's what he's saying here. All that I have received from the Father I have given to you. I've shared that with you. What did Jesus withhold from us? Nothing. Nothing. Jesus shares all that he has received from the Father with his followers. This is, this is mind-boggling, friends, that we would be entrusted with such knowledge. And yet Jesus doesn't balk at bestowing it to us. For friendship with Jesus reveals the knowledge of God. And here's where it begins. God is not holding out on us and Jesus is not holding back from us. God doesn't have this little box of super secret stuff that you only get if you get to it. Not at all. For God's not holding out. Jesus is not holding back. 
all that the Father shares, Jesus makes known to his friends. This knowledge of God pervades all of life in light of who God is and what he's done, what he's doing, and that becomes a foundation and a catalyst of transformation by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 2 tells us. Christ followers live as Jesus' friends when we think about all things according to God's word given to us. Part of our vision here at LifePoint is this, that Christ followers are disciples who engage the mind to cultivate a transformation by God's truth. To grow, we talked about progressive sanctification last week, to grow into maturity, to grow and to mature, excuse me, into the image in which we are being conformed. And that confirmation begins and carries forth through the word of God, his truth within us. The knowledge that Jesus shares, friends, is not merely facts. But it is living truth that transforms life in every way. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged swords. It divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It transforms life in every way. It transforms life in every area, in every dimension, in every degree, in every form, and in every manner in order that we are made new. Not just put on from the outside, but made new from within at the very core and essence of our being. And Jesus gives this knowledge of God to his friends. Consider what this means for us, friends. For the Christian, this means that we understand his purpose, that God saves through Jesus to multiply his glory on the earth. For the Christian, this means that we understand his plan, that, that through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, he redeems us from sin to make us righteous before him. We understand his strategy that, that we as Christians become participants in the reconciling, redeeming work of God in this world as ambassadors of him. As Christians, we understand that our life serves his mission in the world by practicing the way of his redemption, the way of love. For the knowledge of God means that Christians are given all we need to live all for His glory. This is what He's teaching us. Let me make a pointed application about what this means for us as Christ followers today. Jesus only said and Jesus only did what the Father told Him and said to Him to say. He tells us that on numerous occasions... God's word is the point of origin for the Christian life as well. For the Bible tells us we're given the mind of Christ as our own. Philippians chapter 2. We have a new mind. And, and, and Romans 12 2 tells us that the whole transformation, the change that God makes in us, begins by the renewal of our mind. Making right what was broken, what was perverted, what was twisted. 
And so Christians set our minds on things above to dwell on that which is commendable, that which is excellent, that which is praiseworthy. Christians are guided by the light of God's truth in what we think about we are guided by how we receive what we think about, that we subject it to the truths of Christ and how we think about what we think about. So we don't just receive whatever it is, but we subject it to the things of Christ as laid forth in his word. And the way that we think about what it is that we think about is also determined what God's word says about the way we should think about what it is we're thinking about. You thinking about it? There is no level, dimension, or degree of the cognitive processes or the electrical synapses of the mind that are not driven to every extent by the Word of God. There is no ology in this life that transcends the superiority of the Word of God. And until we become deeply convicted about that in the center of our being, the mind of Christ will not be the mind of his followers. We are guided by how we process what we think about, directing all of our thoughts through God's redeeming knowledge for eternal glory. Christians are given God's redeeming knowledge to think according to the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian, who's controlling your mind? Think deeply and highly Think broadly and completely. Think continually and unendingly about the things through God's redeeming knowledge that you have been given by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For what you do with and what you do in your mind is your responsibility as friend of Jesus. And you cannot live the new of the Christian life as Jesus' friends with the same old mind that was darkened by sin without him. Jesus gives Christians a redeeming knowledge of God to think according to his truth. Christian, you know what your master is doing because he makes it known to you as his friend. You can't live as Jesus' beloved and continue to think the same old way. You, you don't become Jesus' friend to live the same way you used to always live. When we fail to think according to God's word, we live as something less or other than Jesus' friend. Christian, you are a new creation with a new mind that makes you think distinctively like Jesus according to and guided by His living Word living in you. And in God's supreme love, Christ followers bear the distinctive trait of God's redeeming knowledge. Do you think about everything in your life according to God's word? The second distinctive trait that Christians bear through love 
is a radical reorientation. Verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The second distinctive trait Christians bear through love is not only a redeeming knowledge, but a radical reorientation of life. Jesus gives the most intimate knowledge of his redeeming work to his disciples. And here is the intimate knowledge he gives them. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That's a game changer right there, friends. That's a game changer right there. Jesus drops a bomb of intimacy, and he tells us two great truths about our relationship with God. First of all, disciples are neither lucky nor merit-worthy. You didn't get saved because of who you are. As a matter of fact, there isn't anything about our salvation that originated anywhere or anything about us. But he tells us you are chosen and appointed. Relationship with God through Jesus is not determined by a person nor because of that person. Rather, God saves because he is merciful and gracious. Listen to Paul in Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now let me ask you this. I don't think there's anybody in the room that completely displays that verse. Praise God. (laughs) Right? But I can tell you every one of us represent a portion of it. And that's the point. Do you know what verse 5 says? Excuse me, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Where am I in those verses? I'm all about verse 3. I'm nowhere to be found in verse 4. Here's what he says. He saved us, verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. You see that? Not because of who we were, not because of what we did. There was nothing in us that merited God's glance, let alone his full measured favor. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more the gospel penetrates your heart, your soul, and mind, and the more intimate your relationship with God grows, the more you become absolutely convinced of this prevailing truth of God's grace that my salvation had nothing to do with me. I'm simply the object upon which God in His mercy chose to set His love. Jesus pursues us to initiate relationship with God because He is merciful and loving. Might I remind you of the signs that flank us? God loved us first. That means He pursued to initiate with us. 
He wasn't responding to us. He was coming after us. And all of Scripture testifies God loved us first while we were still his enemies. But he loved us and was merciful to us to make us his friend when we would believe in Jesus. And the second truth here is that Jesus chose and appointed disciples to go and bear fruit. And he says, fruit that lasts. Jesus' work in our life by his redeeming power to bear fruit is not our work only either, friends. We looked last week at the fruit of the Spirit and what it looks like for his work to be, uh, to be made known in our life. We talked about what comes from our life that is the fruit of him that brings glory to him. You see, friends, without God's redeeming work in our lives, there will be no fruit. That's what we learned last week. But listen, Jesus builds on that this week to say this. Without God's sovereign work on our lives, there may be fruit, but it will not last. It'll be expended for lesser glory. I used the illustration last week of a branch that I cut off of a tree about a month ago. Trees are dormant. That's when you're supposed to do the heaviest pruning of them. And that tree still rests in my backyard. And I made a statement to you that that branch will not bear fruit because it's cut off from the vine, from the main trunk. You know what I saw yesterday walking through my backyard? It's got a bud on it. It's got a bud on it. What will happen to that bud? Some of them might even bloom. Because of the life that's left in that disconnected limb might have just enough to produce a few buds that bloom. And who knows? It's not a fruit-bearing tree, but if it were, it might even start the formation of what looks like an actual piece of fruit. But sooner or later, it's going to dry up because it's not being sourced. And that's what Jesus tells us in this passage about the fruit he has saved us not only to bear fruit for his glory, but to bear fruit that lasts. Spiritual fruit is never given to your life for personal pleasure, for personal gain, or for personal purposes. Jesus appoints us to invest his fruit for his purposes and for his glory by his appointment. The Christ follower's radical reorientation culminates, friends, in the sovereign work of God. It transforms us to say, all of me, all about me, and all from me are his and for his purposes. There's nothing of me, there's nothing about me, and there's nothing from me that is mine. They are his and fruit that abides begins as fruit that originates from God's redeeming work in you. Then that fruit gets applied to serve his kingdom mission through your life. That's what it means to live with the appointment of God on you. God appointed you to bear fruit by redeeming work that he is doing in you. And to bear that fruit. 
and invest it in such ways that abide. That's what he says. We're back to that word, friends. Do you see how we've come full circle? That our abiding in Christ produces fruit in us that's invested through us and by us into his sovereign work of life that that fruit might abide. In other words, the fruit that comes from our life through the redeeming work of God in us outlasts us. Why? Because God ordained us and appointed us to make an eternal impact, not just an immediate one. To make an impact that bears His name, not ours. And that's what God's doing in your life, Christians. We don't have the freedom to hold, to hoard, to store, to cherish, to use, or to expend God's fruit in our lives in any way we want. When we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, God's redeeming work in us reorients our lives fully for his purpose upon us. What he produces in us, he leads to invest because of his appointment he put on us. Abiding in Jesus begets fruit that abides for eternity. Might I go back to the signs on the wall? God loves you first. God loves you last. In everlasting ways. There isn't anything about God that's temporal. There isn't anything about God that he produces that fades, withers, or goes away. And when God calls us, when he chooses and appoints us, he does so to represent him. He does so to live a life that testifies of his love. And love that will last, that comes from the Christian, will only last if it is fruit that's been invested for his kingdom purposes by the appointment that he has put up on us in our life. Christian, you are chosen and appointed to go and bear fruit to last for God's purposes. And here's where he says, can you imagine how much of this teaching was resonating when we actually get to Matthew 28 and he gives the Great Commission? Because here's the Great Commission right here, friends. Christians reorient their life to go. The appointment of God is not for a day uh, uh, not for a day a week, not for a compartment of our life or a certain demonstration of our life. It's for all of our life. That the appointment of God set upon us by His sovereign uh, uh, command over us defines our going in every way. Christian, you live with a distinct purpose to serve Jesus in all and in every way of your life. All of our goings include the when and the where, but mostly they address the how. And the how is simply this, to love, to love because we have been loved, we will live God's love. What God does in your life through the gospel is always and only by his mercy and grace. That's how we bear fruit. What God does with your life serves his sovereign purpose. That's how our fruit is invested to last. God's work in your life and through your life, demonstrated by his work on your life, testifies of a redeeming love in Jesus Christ for all who believe to become the beloved. Christian, you've not radically reoriented your life to Jesus until all of life 
is an intentional going to invest the fruit he produced in you. Is your life a life that's saying to the world that's around you every day that the love of God is worth, that the love of God is greater, that the love of God that's been placed on my life is worth you believing in Jesus to receive it for your own. Jesus identifies prayer as the Christian's principal labor. He says this, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And so, so, so here's how you're going to do that. Here's the, here's the activity in which you engage. And he says this, whatever you ask the Father, he comes back to this powerful promise that he's already made in chapter 13 and 14 and and he continues to demonstrate to them how the principles that he's teaching will be demonstrated through prayer and and prayer is the christian's principal labor friends for intercession is the most divine work to invest the fruit of our life before we go do anything with it we need to bring it into the prayer of our life For when we pray, we enter into a divine communication channel with the triune God. And our prayer invests our fruit for change. Prayer changes people. Prayer changes circumstances. Prayer changes situations. When we pray, things change. But most of all, we change. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The Christ follower asks. Who does he ask? He asks the Father. But how does that channel of communication flow through the triune God that the Spirit who inhabits us because Jesus sent him speaks to the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father and is ruling as Lord who is interceding for us to the Father. The Father hears and he answers and he gives that answer to the Son, sends it back to the Spirit of God who is within us and the Spirit of God illumines within us and motivates within us and directs his counsel within us to live out through us but when he answers it comes to us it is in us and it is to be lived out through the Christ follower prayer changes everything by God's power at work but first and most it changes me and that's what Jesus is telling us Jesus chose you Christian to place his love on you so you could take his love to others That's what we do. We we transfer the the power of God's love by telling them God loves you through the way that we live our life and all that we do. And Jesus ordained his redemptive work of love to go forth as you, Christian, bear fruit and invest it to last. Jesus' words are a radical revelation of the knowledge of God that reorients all of the life of a Christ follower to him as Lord. In God's supreme love, Christ followers bear the distinctive trait, not only of a redeeming knowledge, but of a radical reorientation to Jesus as Lord. So what do we do with all this? Where do we begin with his sovereign work? Verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The third distinctive trait Christians bear through love is simply one resound. One resound. And I'm telling you, if it could have gotten here on time, I'd have had one of those big, ugly, sport event fingers that lights up. Just to try and replace the other mental image I gave you at the beginning of the sermon. 
Jesus' words become alarmingly simple to love one another. Friends, love synergizes the Christian's life because in love, all the commands of God are fulfilled. And while this sounds simple, we know it's anything but easy. But love does far more than we would accomplish and in ways we would never dream. For the Bible tells us love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude of sins. Every command of Jesus is first a call to complete love. First, true, most, and last. And this makes a life of love, the Christian's one resound. Jesus repeats his command to love one another. And here's what he adds in verse 14 here. Excuse me, verse 12. I need to look before I say that, don't I? This is my commandment that you love one another. And here's what he adds. As I have loved you. Now, let me clarify something. He didn't tell us to go and do what he did. That would be like I loved you. He didn't tell us to go and do what he did. We couldn't do that. He didn't tell us to do it uh, 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 how. But, but, but what he said is this. Do in the way that he did as I have loved you. That's why when he laid down his life, he died and was the perfect, perfect sacrificial atonement for sin. When we lay down our life, we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We are a living sacrifice, Christians, because he died and rose again. He lived a life of love, first unto the Father and other people and specifically his disciples. And the Father's glory was his singular focus. This means that in all we do, we do in love, out of love, begetting what he has placed upon us. The way you know that God's love is the one resound of your life is pretty simple. Simply ask yourself this, do people know God loves them because of me? Do people know that God loves them because of me? Christian, Jesus loved you For this one resound, to live as you've been loved. In God's supreme love, Christ followers bear the distinctive trait of a life of one resound. Love. Love. Christian, the more you abide in Jesus, the more you'll live as you've been loved. May we learn to live as we've been loved so the world will know God's love. Let's pray.